Welcome to the SJ Child Show, where a little bit of knowledge can turn fear into understanding. Enjoy the show. Thanks for joining the SJ Child Show. I'm really excited today to meet with someone I've been corresponding with. Uh, He is in the UK, and I'm really excited for you all to get to know more about Paul Isaacs. I'm excited to get to know more about him. So uh, yeah, without further ado, hi, Paul. Thanks so much for having or being on the show today and, and, you know, having your evening with us. Yeah. Hello. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. It's an honor to meet you. I, you know, I know that you do a lot of advocating uh, where you're at over there and kind of met up through those avenues of, of you know, knowing mm-hmm. uh, other advocates. And next time you see Miss Anna Kennedy, give her a big hug for me. Um, she's fantastic. I love to watch all her exciting things she has going on. But I am excited to get to know you more and kind of learn more about your story and hear about your um, coaching and things that you're doing. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I may as well start from the beginning in terms of um, developmental history trajectory, and then follow on with what I do currently. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I was I was born I was born in '86. So when I talk about my autism in terms of trajectory and presentation. Um, I, I like to break it down into pieces so that people can at least have a chance to understand what and how I'm talking about it in a way which is at least tangible. So breaking that down, in 86 I was born, so part of my autism or autism, it's probably better to be called a, a plural rather than a singular, was uh, <clears throat> prematurity. So if we think about what prematurity the nervous system is underdeveloped in some way uh, and that can in turn have impact on on development other factors that were quite serious was fetal distress uh, a placental abruption which is when the placental wall breaks and oxygen deprivation concurs uh, so hypoxic injury, so hypoxic brain injury, happened. Wow. And just to give people an idea of that in terms of what it is, when the membrane brain breaks, it, it, in terms of which organ it hits, it is the brain first. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that in terms of the context of what I'm talking about, it's the brain first and then, it, in two minutes, cells start to die in the brain. So my mum was rushed off to the hospital with my father in tow. And I, I was born through a C-section, uh, a cesarean section. And I was put in what is called a skaboo, which is for light therapy, for prematurity. Um, that was because of the hue of my skin which is to do with bilirubin and bilirubin is to do with the liver so if anybody doesn't understand why some 
like a jaundice or like a yellower yeah, color. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was the underdevelopment of the liver, and I had jaundice as a mm. as a baby. That's correct. Yeah. So there were mitigating factors. So fetal distress, cerebral hypoxia, prematurity, uh, a C-section birth. So all these factors are individual to me. And I would say in the first six months of life, my mum thought I was deaf and blind Mm. um, because that is how I appeared. Now, in terms of observation, that would be an interesting way of observing and thinking. Could that be going on? It was nothing to do with the sensory organs at all. It was to do in which my brain was filtering both visual perception, what I was seeing, and language processing, so what I was hearing. And when I went to preschool in the late 80s, I was about 80% meaning blind, so I didn't see with meaning or didn't perceive with meaning, so I was tactile kinesthetic. So I used to externalise to internalise. I used to lick, sniff, tap, rub my surroundings to try and get an idea of what it is, where it is, what its function is, to aid context and association. And as an extension of that, I was face blind. And I can remember knowing my mother and father by uh, sculpting my father's face. Mm. So I'd know that that was father and and going through my mother's hair, which I've adopted. She's got curly hair. Mm -hmm. And I would know that that was mother. And so during that time, there was a very narrow, narrow bandwidth for interpretation. So so visual perception so meaning blind object blind meant i i saw in bits not holes so it was fragmented vision and i was about 80 percent meaning deaf so there's a very narrow bandwidth for meaning um body disconnected so i wasn't connected with my body uh or apraxic to some degree so if i did find words within my conscious mind they they wouldn't necessarily come out they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't um, kind of join in. My brain and body did not always want to hold hands and play ball, mm-hmm. so they. So it would be uh, very difficult sometimes for me to express. There was echolalia, and w- when I was around seven or eight years old, when functional speech did come, it was expressively of of a of a three year old. Uh, in terms of content, at least. And I had issues around bullying. Now, the bullying started in probably late 80s. Oh. I was around three years old when, when bullying. You're kidding me. Oh, yes. Yeah, I was bullied. I was, <sighs> yeah, that's, I, I've got a message about that. So I didn't have functional mm-hmm. speech. So I was let out into the world the wide world by my parents because um they wanted me to get an idea of what the world was 
and wanted me to be a child. You've got to put it in context that children go out and play in their communities, etc. But I was hit and I was kicked and I was pushed and I was spat at, um, locked in a cage at seven. This was with a friend. I often told this, tell this story about walking down a trap with friends and these older children grabbed hold of us and had this makeshift cage that was built of, I believe, like fishing wire, so very malleable and bendable wire. And we were in there for about an hour. But nevertheless, the, the bullying was was persistent, and it started around eighty nine and finished around two thousand and fifteen. So this is decades oh, and decades, yes. and decades of of, of uh, bullying. But the way in which I uh, reasoned all of this out and rationalised it and objectified it and moved on from it was to adopt an idea that those people may well have been unhappy they may well have had developmental issues and challenges of their own they may well have come from backgrounds or were in environments that weren't tolerant or their environments weren't very sympathetic to them uneducated Uh, yeah well it's not just that you can't teach somebody something if they're not ready to learn it or they're not so in the right true. place mm. so the way in which I rationalise their behaviour was to humanise them and thank them and people say why do you thank them for treating you in such a way or people have said this and it's quite simple I didn't ask to be born I didn't ask to have the condition I have I didn't ask for many things the colour of my skin the colour of my hair the social class I was born in etc etc so in essence you're born and things happen it doesn't mean I they're right and it doesn't mean I necessarily procure or validate what happened in terms of agreement all I'm saying is is that I rationalise what happened to me and I thank them for doing what they did to me because at least they gave me a, a very strong foundation of how not to treat people because yeah. there's a firm difference between um, being a victim, being constantly in the cycle of victimhood, which I refuse to be in. So I've been a victim, past tense, of various things but I refuse to go down the road of victimhood. And that is why I wanted to rationalise and to some degree understand why people do certain things. One must humanise these people, understand their perspective, however hard, and move on or move through, or at the very least internalise it in such a way that your nervous system is not on edge all the time about certain things. I love that. I mean, what a way to be an example of compassion. And like you said, just humanizing. I love that word. I love to, um, I love to look at people and know that their behavior is communication in what way they're communicating is, is however they understand how and it's it's kind of like you and I I feel like we can take the time to to look at that rationalize that 
um, reconcile those, those ideas, thoughts, and feelings and help others to hopefully understand that it's all stemming from somewhere, a lack of, you know, compassion or understanding, um, not being heard, not being in control. Yeah. 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 That lack of validation, personal things going on in their lives, uh, projection, yeah. mirroring, whatever. So, yeah, one has to try and, and rationalize it because you'll live your life constantly in the past. Yeah, that's not a good place to go, is it? No, <laughs> no you got to. No. It's okay to have memories. But yeah, I like that you, you have to just always, um, I mean, and it's great to look for the future, but being present is where we really should try to be um, just to, you know, be appreciating what we have. And especially with someone who has kind of a, a story where you, I'm sure, have an appreciation for your life. It was a hard route to get into. And you, you know, now are, have come so far. Um, congratulations on all of the hard work. And, you know, so sorry that you had to go through a lot of, of those hard times to get to where you are today. But that mindset change, I think that it's so, um, glo- like it's and everyone, everybody has the chance to make a choice to stay victim to their past, to their, you know, whatever, or to kind of be the best and try to see how to navigate situations, especially types of social situations where there's, you know, bullying incur. Um, but to really try to navigate those with more understanding, what are some things that like you're doing now with your life to try to make those changes happen? I suppose to answer that question, I have to break that down. In terms of making that happen, the point I made prior still stands that you can only meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was to speak to 100 people in a room and only one person got it, that would be enough for me. I like that. Um, it, it, because it, it, you, you have to accept where people are because we all start with no knowledge about anything. We all start as novices. We all start with limited or no no knowledge at all. So you have to work from where people are and accept that people aren't where you are for various different reasons. So that's the the first point. The second point is that people um, bat around stereotypes around autism. I've been in this game for about 13 years, the advocacy movement, and there's highs and lows, personal highs and lows, professional highs and lows, but stereotypes, you know, uh, uh, being created left, right, and center, and then they get per se, and then new ones are created. So we have to kind of ditch this kind of rhetoric, mm. collectivist notion that all autistic people think, act, and behave the same. Yeah. So that in turn goes with my ethos around this subject, which was by a mentor and a friend called Donna Williams, 
who sadly passed away six years ago, six years ago, this either late this month or, or in April, she died of um, cancer. And she was on the autism spectrum. She was a lecturer, a speaker and an author. And she was born in the mid early to mid 60s. Mm. And her diagnosis, as dated as it was, was, was childhood psychosis. So that just gives you an idea of what they thought autism was yeah. in the 60s. And she devised an a analogy of autism, which I use, called the, the fruit salad analogy, where one breaks down autism into its individual parts, which are unique to each person. Now, these conditions on their own are conditions in their own right. They're not autism. I'm sorry to say if that upsets people, but they're not. What makes someone autistic or present autistically is if there's enough components. So if you go back to what I said about my development, um, you know, I have prosopagnosia, which is face blindness. I, was, I had object blindness, which is somal agnosia. You can look all these up. I had meaning blindness, uh, visual associative agnosia, semantic agnosia, body disconnectivities, body body agnosis and pain agnosis, oral apraxia. Mm. So already with all those different words and all those different pieces, you're building up an autistic mm. presentation, mm -hmm. uh, language processing challenges, uh, receptive expressive aphasia. And some of these things cross over into acquired brain injury anyway. Mm. Um, the only difference is, is that I was born with them. So I don't know what it's like to not experience them in terms of my reality. Mm. Does that make sense, what I've just said? Absolutely. I mean, to me, hopefully to the listeners as well, but yeah. I'm also so, well-versed in, in, in my autistic self and my family members, my husband, two kids, and myself. So, and I was the last one to find out on my, on my own and as an adult, and it's been fascinating. Indeed, and it is, and it's very personal and it's, yeah. it's individual. So that's the the ethos I use, and then I do extend that I, I, uh, into other areas. So that was information processing. Then you've got mm -hmm. personality types, personality traits, adjustment, disordered extremes. Then you've got mental health. So mental health conditions are some are more common than others. Um, anxiety, dissociation, psychosis, attachment, impulse control. And then you've got environment, so the person's environment, and this could be cultural. It could be too with many different aspects of environment. The you've got to look at mitigating factors, so that it could include class, that could could include color, race, and creed. Mm -hmm. It can include culture, etc. And then you look at other things, such as is a person isolated or alienated? Is a person? Um, in a situation where the parents are mourning for the child, mm. mourning for the child that they never had, the psychological phenomena that, that phenomena that may not get addressed is to be empathic, empathic to these parents mm. who may be going through their own trials of understanding and acceptance. And sometimes the worrying aspect is, is it could be potentially met with judgment. But people, again, you can only meet them where they are. And if this is actually happening, maybe a kindly word or 
some comfort for those individuals that rather than judging them on having these thoughts and feelings beautifully um you could could have issues around cat that what donna used to call cat versus dog people so cat Mm. people are more aloof and i'm quite aloof i'm not arrogant i think people can confuse the two um to be arrogant is to think you're above people yeah be aloof is to be slightly stand standoffish, which I am. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily like to be in the mix. I like to observe. I'm naturally a very solitary person anyway, which mm-hmm. makes me look more archetypally more autistic. Mm-hmm, yeah. You can be solitary without autism, but nevertheless, you can get people who have exposure anxiety, who are, whose nervous systems are triggered by self-awareness, so they go into compulsive and impulsive diversion retaliation responses to direct communication to being made self-aware. Mm. And these people may have a nervous system which is on a hair trigger. Yeah. Um, and I had exposure anxiety and it was very challenging. So being indirect with the way you speak uh, indirect confrontation, not watching, waiting, expecting, not being a helicopter, mm. um, things like that. Whereas you, the dog people are the people where, as analogy proceeds, the people that you get, you just can't give them enough uh, mm. in terms of stimulus. And then we go into other areas such as diet and nutritional disabilities, which. Yeah. People think it's quackery, and it really isn't. No, um, I agree. Donna, Donna spoke about her own troubles with uh, candida um, and, and thrush uh, that was just mm. in her gut. I mean, people think yeah. of it in, in various places usually, which you can get them, but it can migrate to the gut, into the mouth, yes. into the ears. Uh, etc. She had vitamin malabsorption. She had salt wasting condition. So um, her my aunt has has this as well. And I've actually never talked to anybody about it or had anyone explain anything in that same way. I didn't mean to cut you off there. (laughs) So that's so interesting, though. And now it kind of, you know, like think dragging my thoughts about that. Yeah. And that will affect pre-existing information processing challenges so it may um entrench what you've already Mm -hmm. got it may amplify what you've already got um and what i'm so pleased with because she had uh, ellis danlos type 4 okay you're seeing more about ellis danlos collagen disorders where on one side you can have hypermobility stretchy skin um dislocated dislocated joints or sublatch joints very painful to the stuff that she had where it was actually having a very um dramatic and serious effect on her cardiovascular mm-hmm. system um her arteries mm-hmm. uh you know popping she would often describe like her arteries were popping um wow. yeah it was really quite oh. uh profound and also she she i remember her writing a story about her cousin who had undiagnosed eds and she had she was having a baby 
And because it wasn't diagnosed, because I don't think people realise collagen is the glue that binds your whole body together. Mm. And, and the organs ruptured because as the baby was growing, it, it actually ruptured some of her organs. So I think we have to, We one talks a lot about information processing, as you do, um, but then we have to have space uh, to recognise that there are other people on the spectrum that have dietary disabilities. Mm. There are other people on the spectrum that have gut, autoimmune and metabolic conditions, collagen conditions, seizure disorders or conditions, yes. whatever your preference the words are. And that is what I like about the fruit salad analogy is that it's giving a platform for people to understand themselves mm -hmm. or understand their loved ones or mm -hmm. understand the children, teenagers or adults they work with because if we're going to ditch the stereotypes, which I see a lot, and I've seen them on social media, Instagram, mm. whatever, it's about filtering that information in a way which may garner anger, it may garner annoyance. I know it has for me over the years right. um, where people get angry with this analogy or get frustrated, which is fair enough. But I think people at least have to realise what the intentions of the work were. So going back to what you said about my work and my speeches, this analogy in various different contexts, be it educational, be it, be it in residential settings, be it in care homes, uh, be it in conferences with parents or autistic people, whatever the context is, um, I mould my speeches around this analogy. I love that. I have really learned so much from you today. I'm just, I'm really glad that we got to um, come together and have this. Anything coming up that you want to uh, tell us about or um, any books? Have you written any books? You're writing any books? Anything like that? Uh in undergoing yeah, I, I mean, some years ago um I, I continued to write blogs yeah um but i i i did write books um five books they're very small um the first one was was an autobiography and that was a that was actually over the very first book was was over 10 years ago wow um so you, if you type my name on amazon in amazon.com obviously over there um in america you can type all eyes it's autism you'll find my books great yeah i think that that's great and do you have a website yes it, it's google sites it's got quite a long uh link name so we'll again, link it down there you yeah, don't, yeah, yeah, you don't even have to worry about that. I'll have all of your links and everything. I'll I'll make sure to have all of that in the show notes for you. Uh, it's been so nice to hear your story. And it, it's great that you are putting so much passion and effort into helping others understand and just be compassionate and uh, more flexible and, you know, kind of stop for a moment, maybe instead of jumping to a conclusion 
or thinking you know might know somebody, um, get to know them. Ask a question. Yeah. You know, like be be willing to let your child ask questions. Let them, if they want to know about somebody that is different, please let them ask you questions and ask the individual. I mean, oftentimes it, you know, it's a fine line between, and I think it's really in the way that you come across in how that you approach people. Some people don't want to be um, on display for, for those purposes, but other people are so compassionate about the, um, the process of children and them being just innocent to the knowledge that they're looking for. Um, you know, it's, you can tell when, you know, when a kid is, is just genuinely interested in, in uh, curiosity yeah. or whether it's has malintent, of course, but let, you know, in the instances that it is just general curiosity, talk to them, give them the information. Um, my husband, I just bless his heart, gave me the best quote to say the other day. He he comes up with these amazing quotes for me and then I get to take all the credit for them. So I'll give him a little bit of credit. But it was, we talked about um, teach your children now before the world has a chance to do it for you. And I think that's yeah. so powerful. Yeah. Oh, it is. It is a powerful sentiment and quote because what you're expressing is that the psychological aspect of caregiving is in the first six years of seven years of life and I learned this from a counsellor uh, a child be it whether they're autistic or not will on some level internalize their caregiving environment as what the world is and of course we know that being a parent and a caregiver isn't perfect so it may come with biases, it may come with prejudices, it may come with warped sense of what the world is. For example, where where I live, the, the village where I live in the United Kingdom is unfortunately quite a, a bigoted place uh, in terms of um, the way it views disability, colour, uh, race, sexuality, etc. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people, sadly, around here, they believe in what their parents and surrounding individuals said to them about yeah. different people. And your husband's quite right that if you get to chill, if you educate children before that ball starts rolling, that means you've got a lot less things to unpick mm -hmm. because then you, you don't necessarily have to have those educatable moments mm -hmm. because the, 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 so the, the seeds of, of, well, better seeds have been sown. Yeah. I mean, Jane, Jane Elliott, I, I have great admiration for, who's an um, anti-racism campaigner and lecturer, and she, I don't know if you're familiar with Jane no. Elliott. Um, please do look her up. I, I would love to, yeah. Yeah, and she, you may have heard of this, because even what I've known with Jane's work is that it's usually when I say what the experiment was, it was the blue eyes, brown eyes experiment. Have you heard of this? I actually have heard of that. That is Jane Elliott. Yeah. And it was after Martin Luther King was assassinated and she wanted to get children to understand what it was like to have one part of you, one part of you, uh, which, which she, she thought of what, what, what skin 
what is the fundamental aspect of skin, which is melanin, which is in your eyes. It's a pigment. Mm. And so that is where the, the blue eyes, brown eyes test came from. So um, it was where the brown eyed people would be uh, um, would be superior and, and the blue eyed people would be subjugated, viewed as inferior. And she took photos of the children at the beginning of the week with blue eyes. And she took a photo of them at the end of the week. And there was a clear difference in um, the way in which they were sitting. Their nervous system was more primed. Their um, body language was potentially suggesting being, you know, being trauma, being downtrodden, being that their energy had been exacerbated. Mm. And I think that's a very poignant message about if one starts treating people in a way which is socially accepted as inferior. Now, what I mean by that is it's a sad fact that in some places in the world, it's ex- bigotry is accepted as fact and there's no room for discourse or there's no room for discussion or argument or debate. And I, I feel with her work, which, which makes one reflect on what it is to be a human being. Another aspect I think that is crucial is, and it, it kind of plays into what I say about the problems with the advocacy world, is this celebrityism. Mm. I do not like. Um, I don't mind real. You can be real. You can yeah. be real on TikTok. You can be real on Instagram. You can be real on YouTube. You can be real. Uh, you know, something that's socially binding, something that is communicating authenticity and realness. And one isn't being a sellout or mm. um, being part of a machine. And this goes back to the stereotypes, what I said before, just batting out stereotype after stereotype. Mm-hmm. And one loses hope. So we have to look at different people on the spectrum in terms of presentation. So that means we're going to have to look into places and into people and into lives that potentially is initially quite uncomfortable. But this is where it has to go. If you want true neurodiversity, this is my argument about neurodiversity. If you want true neurodiversity you have to go to those areas Mm, yeah because it can't be just about people who are verbal or speaking it's got to be about other people from other cultures from other creeds uh, male female black white you name it it has to garner a wider palette because then what you're getting is a better idea of what Mm. autism is in fact I'll be quite frank, autism doesn't really exist, at least not in the way um, we think about it currently. Um, And what I mean by that is because there are so many stereotypes, um, people just do not want to look at it as something that is actually tangible. You remember what I said earlier in in the conversation about face blindness, object Mm -hmm. blindness, all these things are tangible. They're hard to get if you're new and it was hard for me to understand it's taken me i'd say about a good five or six years to get a grasp of what donna was talking about but i consider it worthy 
by no means am I saying this analogy is easy, but it's not meant to be easy because people aren't. People no. are complicated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. People are complex. So, so complex, yeah. So I think if we if we're going to look at neurodiversity in in its totality, then we have to think about the whole thing mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of different lives and experiences, um, and not denying their reality because it doesn't fit the current narrative. Yeah, you have to dig all those things really, and. Rather than collectivism, I wrote this in a blog, um, which has been posted recently. We have to look at individualism. If we think autism is a collective, collective condition, that's where it's going wrong, because mm-hmm. it doesn't. The amount of people I've met on the spectrum who are not like me, and vice versa, would suggest that we're not all the same. There are some people on the spectrum mm-hmm. who aren't faceline. Yeah. There are some people who are more logical and literal than me. There are some people who live in a more pattern theme and feel world. There are some people who are, I would, I would say, very emotively introspective. There's uh, people, friends, through uh, Don, I've got a really lovely lady, the mum Lisa Sydney Edmund, who is functionally nonverbal, non-speaking, and uses uh, facilitated assisted communication devices mm. to speak and she's a wonderful poet and artist um i i urge anyone to check out her work mm. um i believe she does sell prints of her her paintings and she loves fashion as well as i do i love mm. poetry creative okay. writing art fashion and what i learned a lot from sid is you know this this yearning you know to be listened to to be heard to be seen as uh, a human being um and again there needs to be more platforms for functionally non-verbal non-speaking individuals yeah it's not because i'm saying it because it's a fad or that i'm gonna change my mind in the next two weeks um this is something i brought up every so often because it's true Mm. um i'm certainly not doing it out of anger um, maybe more frustration rather than the latter. But I'm also fully aware that people, again, it goes back to what I say, people aren't ready. And yeah. if people aren't ready, you can't push it. You can what I've what I've learned to do over the years is rather than push it, just let it go. Just mm. put it out there. Plant a see. seed. Uh, yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because you over the, the, the analogy of the seed is quite good because if you overwater a seed, it, it doesn't flourish. Mm-hmm. You just yeah. have to wait for it to grow slowly. Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, a lot like my husband, like the analogies and like, you know, like to explain things that way. I think it's it's so fascinating and beautiful. And I'm the the creator, the the poet, and I love all of those things too. In fact, I was just, it jogged my memory of um, a friend that I had met. He is also um, speaks on a, uh, a device and he is in Germany. He's um, written poems and children's books and does uh, plays, plays music. I want to say either the piano or the harp, but something pretty incredible. Um, but he's just, uh, 
growing. His name is Florian Mueller. He's in Germany. So check out his work too. You might, you might find his yes. story I've and stuff just it. fascinating. Oh, he's, he's incredible. I had a, a wonderful honor and opportunity to, to also, um, he, he wasn't actually able to be a part of the show, but his, uh, therapist that work had been, has been working with him for like 20 something years or something was, um, the one who I did the interview with and, but a beautiful friendship that has come out of it all. And, oh, it's just, it's amazing to be able to make this happen through this medium around the globe. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Furthermore, I think on on that, there's a brilliant documentary. Uh, I don't know if you've heard it about people who communicate and type to speak called Wretches and Jabberers. Mm. It was a documentary. It's a DVD. um, And it's, it's, it's quite amazing. It follows two men in they're they're in their 60s. Now they're in their 50s. Then, uh, I remember one of the met the gentleman's name. His name was Tracy, and oh, it was Tracy and Larry. That's it. Mm. And they went round the, the, the parts of the world, um, finding other autistic individuals who um, type to speak. So I highly recommend oh, that. Um, it's absolutely, Gabbers. Thank uh, you. Tracy is is on Facebook, and I believe Larry is as well. Um, I'm thinking of who else I've, I've, I've befriended Henna. I think she comes from Finland. She was on the documentary. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noted that all of them had in common was they were, because they were observers of the world, they had to be, didn't they? Yeah. Um, what I, um, what, what was, there were two things that seemed really interesting. They were all creative in different ways. Um, one of them was an artist. The other one was a poet. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you see the, the sort of thread? And they all seem to have this uh, deep emotional introspective way of looking at themselves and others when they typed, um, which I actually think was belies the myth and is another yeah. myth-busting exercise that, that, that autistic people are potentially emotionally redundant it was Mm. quite clear that all these individuals were very emotionally attuned individuals Mm -hmm. in different ways um so i it's kind of good that we've we've got onto this subject because i don't think it really gets spoken enough about so it's, it's kind of good that we've we've kind of flowed into this area of facilitated and Assisted communication. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. I want to be as compassionate and just understanding and learning all the time about as many things and as many people as I can. And I just feel like it brings so much more to me. And then I can implement the things I learn if they're great, you know, or try and do whatever, yeah, but yeah. it's so fascinating. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to kind of be just in a place where I wasn't learning or wasn't trying to get out there and, and meet people. And like, unlike the observers, I'm the outgoing, you know, <laughs> the one that, that likes to 
be and talk to everyone. But I think at that time, it also helps me make real true connections with people. Um, and it it's so heartwarming to me to think of all of the relationships and you know, voices and just ideas that I've been able to share, um, having a platform. I never expected or anticipated it would grow to such amazing feats, but I'm just so honored by all the guests and, and listeners that support that we've had here to do this. And so, yeah, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very nice to meet you. Yeah, really great conversation. Well, I hope that we can catch up again sometime in the future, possibly. And we're, we do stay connected um, on social media. So I will see you then. Uh, see you there around there, I'm sure. Uh, and thank you so much for really explaining um, so in depth and complexly what some of our listeners might not have understood before. Yeah, you're welcome. I I try. (laughs) Yeah, you're brilliant. And I I just appreciate you so much. Well, I am um, really excited we did this. And I hope that we can stay in touch for sure. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, we can. 